Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm actually a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York City's extraordinary neighborhoods and our amazing history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current vibe, its energy and texture, what makes the neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood, like one of our fine urban parks, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, uh, an extraordinary museum, the history of the transit system, or maybe a unique New York architectural phenomenon. And each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. We have a special show today. We're going to focus on a great neighborhood in the city, Gramercy, and a park that bears the same name. We have two series of guests. One is a local historian, and then we have a family who owns a family business in Gramercy. Our first guest is Tom Miller. Tom is a historian and preservationist and is the voice of, Day- of the Daytonian in Manhattan, sorry, Tom, a popular blog started seven years ago in which Tom has covered more than 2,800 Manhattan buildings. I didn't know there were that many significant buildings in Manhattan. Also, statues, fountains, and other points of interest that make Manhattan fascinating. Tom is the author of Seeking New York, the stories behind the historic architecture of Manhattan, one building at a time. It was published in 2015. And he's just published a new book, Seeking Chicago, The Stories Behind the Architecture of the Windy City, One Building at a Time. It was just recently released. Tom, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. You're obviously not from New York. You're from Dayton. What brought you to New York? What had you come to our fair city? I came to New York in uh, 1978. At that time, Ohio, which is a very industrial state, was going uh, through some pretty bad times uh, economically. I had a job offer here, and in order to eat, I came. What kind of work did you do when you first got here? I worked for a truck. Oh, here? Yes. Um, I, I worked for a, uh, a real estate company, actually, um, in Midtown. What inspired you to start writing about, start getting into this, the city's history and its buildings, its statues, and to, and to start wanting to write about it and share your, your thoughts and observations with others? I've always been interested in architectural history and social history, and uh, a few years back, uh, an architect friend of mine was in town. We had lunch in Midtown, and we were walking across um, 54th Street from 6th to 5th Avenue, and I was pointing out some of the extant houses from the turn of the century and telling him who lived there, the Rockefellers, the Stars, the Laymans, and he said that uh, I really had to write a blog, which I didn't know what that was. Um, and that was the beginning of it. And when did you decide to call it the Daytonian in Manhattan? That's a pretty, pretty catchy title. Right. Well, the day that I wrote my first, um, my first post, I started to send it out there and it wouldn't let me cause I didn't have a title. So that was <laughs> the, it just occurred to me. I didn't think anyone would ever read it anyway. So that's what I, that's what I put out there. What is the phrase, necessity being the best part of invention or something like that? I forgot exactly how it goes. Um, Gramercy is a very interesting neighborhood. It's it's neither really downtown or uptown. Um, 
I heard that it was originally a swampy area before it started getting built up, wasn't it? That immediate part where the park is uh, was swampy. Uh, it was part of uh, James Duane's 18th century farm. And when we talk about 18th century farms that far north of what was the established city, um, they weren't really farms like cows and chickens. They were summer estates. Right next door was the Robert Murray estate, Murray Hill. Um, so these weren't farms like we think of it. But Dwayne's du- farm was called Gramercy Farm. And Is that, that the same Dwayne that Dwayne Street bears his name? Yes, yeah. and he was one of the early mayors of New York City. Uh, Gramercy Farm was named, it was a corruption of two Dutch words, which means crooked swamp. <laughs> and so that's where the name Gramercy comes from. Um, but it was actually about that t- sort of that two acre-ish area where the park itself is that was really boggy. Uh, the whole farm wasn't. Mm. This is going to be a pointed question. You know, we <clears throat> So much of New York uh, has history from the Revolutionary War. And okay. co- of course, Brooklyn and, and, and further uptown. Did, did what became Gramercy, did that see any action during the, the Battle of it New York? It probably did, because when the, the troops, both the, the American and the British troops, when they would come and go and come and go, and that happened throughout the war, they would very often take over these houses. The people who lived in those summer homes, those massive houses, um, were pretty much gone uh, by then, and the the armies would just take them over. I don't think there were really any battles right there, but there were definitely probably occupation. Uh, there's the famous story of, uh, of uh, I think, Mrs. Murray, but that's uh, we'll deal with that when we get to Murray Hill in a future episode, who sort of uh, uh, had tea with the British and gave uh, the Continental troops a chance to escape up the island. Um, is there any uh, uh, Lenape history at all in this area? Or was it just so swampy that there was no uh, that uh, uh, people before the Dutch came just didn't didn't bother with it at all? I don't know that or that far back. I, I really don't know. Hmm. How was Gramercy developed? When did it begin to take on the trappings of a neighborhood of the city? I mean, it was farmland, and then of course, as as cities grow, uh, uh, things that have been farms turn into tracts, and uh, they get uh, they get houses. All right, Samuel Ruggles was a developer, and <clears throat> this was an early example of urban development, planned neighborhoods. Um, private squares, exclusive enclaves like this, uh, were not uncommon. He probably based this one on uh, St. John's Park, which was where today the tangle of roadways going into the Holland Tunnel is. Mm-hmm. It was a very elegant park surrounded by federal-style mansions and anchored on the east side by a masterful Georgian-style chapel, St. John's Chapel. Um, So he probably based it on that. He anticipated the upward movement of the city. And uh, in 1831, he purchased the land, started draining it, and it took several years. He spent... um, $180,000 $180,000 in 1831 to 1835 to landscape that park, which is about $5.4 million today. It was all speculative, so he had a lot of guts. In 1831, how, uh, where was kind of the line where there was development in those? I mean, if you look in the East Village now, I don't, I don't like along 2nd, there are some old houses on 2nd Avenue, 
between the Bowery and uh, between the Bowery and Second, I, would those seem to be of about that age? Were there? Yeah, by 1831, the, that was about the Northern Hem. And as a matter of fact, the very next year, 1832, he started an almost identical problem. Uh, project a few blocks to the west union square that was almost identical to um gramercy park it had a, a private fenced um park surrounded by mansions it was the same concept hmm. and he did that the next year i wonder if ruggles got any of his influence from the the concept of private parks in london there were many private parks in london that uh, estates right. uh, that that uh Land barons had they built all this housing and would and would reserve the use of the parks like Bedford Square for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I wonder if that was in his influence. Yeah, style. because the the English the 18th century English here in New York, obviously they copied everything that London was doing their their architecture the and so the private park concept came with them. One of the things that's interesting about Gramercy is that um, uh, there are several uh, though there's one road that goes through it. Uh, that was not part of the original grid, I don't think, uh, from 1811. Lexington Avenue and Irving Place? Right, yeah, two, yeah, two, 18, yeah, uh, it was Ruggles who went to Albany and lobbied to have those two streets uh, opened up, obviously for good reasons for him. Um, Originally, in 1831, he had laid out 66 um, building plots around the park. Uh, That was reduced to 60, when the two streets, uh, when the when the state agreed to open up those two streets, what in the original plan did they intend to go through? Because of course uh, uh, Lexington and uh, Irving Place don't meet; they meet on opposite ends of uh, on opposite ends of the actual square. Right. I, you know, I'd actually have to go back and look at the the old uh, 1811 commissioner's plan, but I don't believe that that square was there. The same with uh, Union Square; it wasn't there on the plan. And I don't, you know, this is something I don't know. I wonder if the, uh, if the reason he went to the legislature is because the city wouldn't do it for some reason. Because, you know, the, uh, the grid that was laid out in 1811 was really revolutionary for an American city. It, it, it was went, incredible. It went up, the, up most of the island to what's now 155th Street. It was incredibly farsighted. It's astounding that it ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know if the city, uh, <laughs> something just to sound like a school test, but I wonder, I just thought of this, if the city, if uh, Ruggles tried to get it done through the city and they wouldn't do it, so then he went to the state yeah. where there might have been uh, yeah. uh, influences, shall we say, like, you know, exist in state governments now that don't quite exist in cities. <laughs> yeah, if he did, I've never seen documentation of that. So. When were the, uh, the first houses that we still see today in the neighborhood, when did they go up? Did they-, they started in the early 1840s. The park was completed and the fence was locked. Uh, by 1835, uh, I believe. But the 1837 financial panic, which was a nationwide enormous uh, financial depression, uh, kind of slowed things down. Uh, they started around 1842, which was a perfect time. It actually worked out very well for those wealthy homeowners who built those mansions because in 1842, the Croton Reservoir was opened. So that meant that all of these new houses being built at Gramercy Park had running water and indoor plumbing. Oh, and had they been built before had that? Had they been built before, they wouldn't have had that. Now, I remember on a walking tour of Chelsea, a tour guide told me that there were a number of houses that were built like in the late 1830s, but didn't have water and then got water added after the city, after the Right, Croton because Reservoir, of 1842 Croton Reservoir. So plumbing is actually an original part of most of those houses then, in that the fact that they had indoor plumbing. Yes. Oh, wow. Um, what, let's talk a little bit about right before the Civil War. Um, 
there's uh, underground railroad history in Gramercy as well. Yeah, you're probably talking about the um, the Friends Meeting House there yes. on the uh, southern edge of the park. Um, that was a Quaker meeting house, and as we all know, Quakers are extreme well, extremely pacifist um, and and very heavily ab- abolitionist. Very anti, um, mm. yeah, anti-slavery. Uh, so th- that that was reportedly uh, part of the Underground Railroad. And Gramercy also saw history, uh, substantial uh, happenings around the time of the Civil War. There were the draft riots in 1863, right. and uh, the square was open, wasn't it, to Union they soldiers? They opened the park. Um, General Robert Potter, who lived at number 16, which is now the uh, Players, <clears throat> he had the park opened. Uh, New York City mustered a lot of troops that came from New England coming down south, they would stop here and be mustered in different buildings. But uh, they set up a, a tent camp there uh, for the uh, Union uh, soldiers. Yeah. Mm. I remember reading too that to protect them, they actually had batteries of howitzers on the square. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they would have had their guns anyway, but because they were moving out. But um, that was very fortuitous for the very wealthy people who lived around the square. Uh, because those draft rioters weren't going to come in mm. with the, the Union soldiers there. No, and actually, I, I remember that a, a lot of the violence of the draft riots was more focused, I think, in the f- upper 30s, 40s, and 50s than it was down in Gramercy, and maybe that was the reason. Well, for- they were really all over the, the city. You know, They burned down the, um, the colored orphan asylum with the children in it. Uh, they just, it was an incredible three-day reign of terror all over the city. Uh, but it didn't really affect Gramercy Park. Uh, it, they did go down the avenues, Lexington and, and um, you know, the nearby avenues, but uh, they didn't get to Gramercy Park. Hmm. All right. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to resume our conversation with Tom Miller, and uh, we're going to start talking about some of the beautiful old buildings that are still on the square. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Follow Me Friday Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day.
We're back to Rediscovering New York and our guest, Tom Miller, the Daytonian in Manhattan. Tom, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about some of the buildings actually in the square. Uh, the Players Club was the the person who I forgot his name who opened up the square to the Union troops during the war. Is the, was that building the same? Is that still the same building or part of it? No, it's the same building. It was built in 1847 for Robert B. Potter and uh, Greek Revival, which is unusual uh, on the park. It's one of the only Greek Revival buildings there. Um, it became the player, the players, uh, when. Edwin Booth, the uh, Shakespearean actor and the owner of uh, Booth Theater on 23rd Street, 6th Avenue. Brother of John Wilkes Booth. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't like you to bring that no. up. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was looking for a place. He wanted a, a club um, for actors because people in the theater were so uh, discriminated Against, They weren't welcome in any of the exclusive men's clubs. Um, so he, <clears throat> he formed the, the, the players, and then he bought the, the Potter House, and he had Stanford White renovate it into a clubhouse. He kept the third floor for his own personal home, um, but uh, Stanford White is, is responsible for the way it looks today. That was a... As like all of the um, private clubs, it was um, men only. Uh, there weren't late women's clubs until the late 19th century, and there were no women in the players until uh, Helen Hayes was the first one. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. When did Stanford White renovate the Players Club? 1897. 1897, okay. And Edwin Booth, had uh, he had his own residence at the top, didn't he? Yes, yeah, third he floor. He, he had third the entire third floor. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you go and look at that statue in the middle of the park that you can't see because we don't have a key, uh, that's Edwin Booth. Uh -huh. That was uh, dedicated in 1913. Is he? I, I've seen the statue, but only from afar. Is is he in any particular costume of any particular role, or is it just him in uh, in the, a suit of the day? Um, a random yeah. question. I don't know. Yeah, I, just, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, what about the National Arts Club? When, when, when does that date from? That's 1844. That was the Governor Samuel Tilden residence. Uh, Tilden was a bachelor his whole life. Um, he was into railroads and banking, but he was best known for being a politician. Um, in 1874, he purchased the house next door at number 14, and he intended to have both houses connected. Uh, then he got elected governor, so he put that on the back burner for two years. Um, interestingly enough, uh, when he came back to New York from being governor, he ran for president. Across the park uh, lived uh, David Field in a house almost directly across from his. David Field invented the college of uh, the Electoral College that election year. I mean, he was responsible. He came up with the idea. Because of that, Tilden lost the election. He won the popular vote, but he lost the election. So they weren't very good neighbors. It was one of the three elections where an American president actually won the Electoral College, but did not win the popular vote. Right. So then those houses were joined by Calvert Vox, the architect who's, who we think mostly of for working on Central Park with Frederick Olmsted. Um, and he's the person who put all the, the busts 
of the authors and, and thinkers on the outside and all those wonderful terracotta um, floral forms and things. So it was Calvert Fox who's responsible for the way it looks today. Um, it became the National Arts Club after Tilden's death in 1905. And then... Oh, so Tilden lived till that, that long, to 1905. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it became the National Arts Club right after he died? In 1905, mm-hmm. it did. I think he, he had died a couple years earlier. One of the mayors of New York also lived on the square, I think on the western side of the square, because it has those, um, uh, those, those lamps. Right. That, uh, right. And I can't tell you who that is. I forgot to. So it <laughs> <laughs> makes you and me both. But it's a very important house, and it has a, uh, a porch that was designed by Alexander Jackson Davis, who was one of that cast iron porch. He was one of America's greatest architects in the early 19th century. So uh, that's a very, very important architectural relic, that porch itself. Mm. Going back to the Players Club for a second, we have to, uh, I have to note that the architect uh, who redesigned the Players Club was actually uh, uh, shot and killed at the top of the second Madison Square Garden, right. uh, just several blocks away by a, a very jealous husband. Uh, Harry Thaw. Yes. Uh, and what turned what they claim was a crime of the century. And of course, he lived on Gramercy Park at the time. Oh, he did. Stanford oh. White did. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, Pete's Tavern, something that uh, many many people uh, uh, like to talk about. Uh, rumor has it that it's the oldest operating, continuously operating bar in the city, but it's not. That's just a rumor. It is not. Mm. It does have the nicest bathroom. <laughs> And the, and the second part of it in the back is really nice, too, with the, yeah. with, with, with the tile floor. There was a hotel above it originally, too, wasn't there? I, there was um, a, hel- a hotel of sorts, yeah. And uh, during Prohibition, uh, it was fronted as a flower shop, and uh, there was still a bar in the back. In the dining room, yeah. Of course, how the police did not even realize that there was a bar in the building. We're not going to speculate. Yeah. Good old uh, cops during Prohibition. but uh, you Well, know. the problem with... Prohibition and the cops and the the federal agents um, did their best, but we had a drinking mayor, uh, James Walker. He loved nightclubs and showgirls, and he went to 21 and all of these speakeasies, so it was very difficult for the police to keep an iron hand on prohibition or oh, the local police the local pl- police yes i remember i worked uh, for a company there's a bill it's technically in gramercy it's on the southwestern corner of uh 23rd street and park avenue that big building and it has two elevator banks but only one of them goes up to the top floor because that's where the part that's where the democratic party was based <laughs> you know so they had to know you know who was coming and going and elevators were hand uh were, were not automatic in those days um wasn't there an attempt to, to bisect the uh, to bisect Gramercy Square about a hundred years ago with the cable car? I, I heard about that. Yeah, I think there was a pro, uh, proposal that never got anywhere. The people who lived around Gramercy Park were so wealthy and so powerful they weren't going to have anything like that. Hmm. And then uh, uh, we also have Baruch College, which is in Gramercy or right north of Gramercy. It's on 20, 24th Street. Was was the college started in that in that location yes, originally? It was. That is, well. That was a, that building was originally a New York, um, New York. What do they call it? City College of the City of New York, mm-hmm. uh, and Baruch moved into that, um, or at least on that that site anyway. But yes, that is the original. And there's also part of Baruch College. Also, is uh, one of the first. It might have been the first structure when the New York City Family Court was established in the 30s. 
It's a beautiful old building. It was built, I think, during the 30s. It mm-hmm. has a very Art Deco feeling to it. I think it's on 22nd Street uh, be. between right off Lexington. Uh, a little bit of history about Baruch. Uh, Bernard Baruch, actually, his father was the Confederate Surgeon General. And uh, he was Jewish, and he moved up north because of the anti-Semitism in the South. And then Bernard Baruch became a, a very successful financier and, uh, and a philanthropist. Um, did the Third Avenue L at all impact the development of the neighborhood, or, or was the use of that most, did it mostly just take people from downtown and you know, further neighborhoods up north? It didn't affect, it didn't affect Gramercy Park, but it certainly affected um, the neighborhood right around the L, as all the L's did, um, both good and bad. It brought um, commerce, which was good, but it also brought a lack of sunshine and dirt, you know, so. But it didn't really affect the square. Hmm. And did Gramercy, um, uh, as a neighborhood, did it also develop on the other side of Third Avenue, just in terms of just people living there and commerce? No. When you go east, um, it was, it got sketchier. It mm. was, I mean, we were getting into what was called Kleindeutschland, and it was Germans and immigrants and such. Huh. How did the Gramercy Park Hotel come to be? What was... Uh... They tore down Stanford White's house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, there were two uh, absolutely gorgeous houses uh, that were built for a man named Henry Taylor. Um, well... He owned them at any rate. He released the... They were on the western corner of Lexington Avenue. He had leased um, the innermost one to a Stanford White's family. He lived in the other one. But in 1897, McKim Eden White finished um, Taylor's house further uptown. uh, And White moved over to that one, completely redid it, brought in um, incredible artifacts, architectural artifacts from all over the world, um, columns and ceilings and paneling. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a masterwork, and they, they lived there until 1906 when he was, when he was murdered. Uh, and then I forget exactly when the Gramercy Park um, was built, but by then Victorian architecture was not on the top of anyone's list, and... Um, those houses were demolished for that. Was it built as a hotel originally? or yes. was it, it was, okay. And then, of course, it was uh, completely redone maybe 20 years ago by uh, the hotelier Ian Traeger. Yeah. There is some really great uh, uh, examples of uh, Victorian or apartment architecture uh, on the square. Mm-hmm. The oldest uh, surviving co-op in Manhattan, the second co-op in Manhattan, is actually at number 34. It's on the eastern right. side of the park, the first co-op having gone up on 57th Street, which is no longer there. Right. That's the 1883 Gramercy. It was a incredible um, concept at the time. Multifamily living in itself was... Um, kind of iffy people didn't people thought of tenements when they thought of apartment buildings uh, so George Takuna who designed that building designed it as sort of small private houses there were three apartments per floor uh, lots of rooms for servants and things like that and the the main lobby was um, was designed to look like the reception hall of a of a private mansion so oh wow yeah <laughs> You know, I've never been in it. And being a real estate broker, I'm uh, almost embarrassed to admit I've never been in that building. But there are lots of buildings in Manhattan. Uh, uh, Tom, what's the uh, address of your of your blog? Uh, 
It's DaytonInManhattan.blogspot.com. And Tom is also the author of two books. One is Seeking New York, the stories behind the historic architecture of Manhattan, one building at a time. It was published by Pimpernel Press in 2015. And his Seeking Chicago, the stories behind the architecture of the Windy City, one building at a time, which was recently released. Uh, what had you decide to do something in Chicago in the, in the short time we have left? My, um, my publisher's from London, and uh, they decided that they wanted to do a series of books uh, I thought they meant New York. They meant a series of cities. And so um, about a year or so ago, they, they told me to work either on Chicago or San Francisco. And my response was, you know, both those cities burned down. And, um, <laughs> but they were steadfast. So it was Chicago. And of course, we have one beautiful building uh, built by the, uh, designed by the famous architect Sullivan, which is down on Bleecker Street, which yeah. is which the is The only Sullivan building in New York, yeah. Yes. Well, Tom Miller, thank you so much for joining us on Rediscovering New York. Hope to thank see you, you uh, again sometime on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love... Or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is about neighborhoods and the myriad textures of New York. Uh, We are not a show about the business of real estate, though, but there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague at Halstead. It airs on Tuesday mornings live at 9 a.m., and it can be heard at at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other little commercial note before we get to our second guests. When I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate broker, and I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we have a special treat today. We actually have a family who owns and operates a business in Gramercy. It's a classic example of a family-run business. 
Here in the studio, we have Carrie and Terry Morabito and their sons, Taylor and Wes. A little bit of a background. Uh, Terry was born in Auburn, New York, actually to a family of 10. Coming from a close Italian family, Terry grew up around the kitchen, helping his mother cook for nine siblings. And after graduating high school, he moved to Florida together with a few friends. Carrie, born around the same time, is from Brooklyn, where I'm also from. After graduating high school, Carrie and her friend decided to travel down to Florida. Once in Florida, she picked up bartending and began to learn the ins and outs of the restaurant industry. And it just so happens she found a home at the same apartment complex as her future husband. And I'm sure that's where they met. Uh, Together, after they moved back up north and later to Staten Island, uh, Terry continued his career as a carpenter while Carrie started a small bakery on Irving Place in Manhattan. She used only organic ingredients, picked out from the Union Square Market, and get this, did not allow smoking in her establishment. Two things that wouldn't be in fashion in this town for at least another decade. Talk about a trendsetter. After Carrie's first write-up by a food reviewer and an amazing increase in her business, Terry left his work to help build up the brand that would become Friend of a Farmer. By the late 80s, they had taken over two storefronts and had plans to take over the apartments above the restaurant to make more space for the demand. Now, Friend of a Farmer is on Irving Place. It's one of three restaurants with the same name, the others being in Roslyn and in Locust Valley on Long Island. Their most recent endeavor is not a Friend of a Farmer. It's a barbecue restaurant called Stewie's Smokehouse, and it's on Long Island. Carrie, Terry, Taylor, and Wes, welcome. This is my first time with with so many people on my show. (laughs) So you and Terry are from different parts of New York. Carrie, what what, what part of Brooklyn are you from originally? Flatbush and where? Flatbush. Mm. It's a long time. Uh, East 96th Street. Oh, okay. So. And then you moved out to Long Beach when you were when you were young. Yes, we moved out of Brooklyn and moved to Long Beach, and um, I was there through high school, and um, I decided to move down to Florida. Hmm. Terry, what had you decide to move to Florida? Uh, I when I was seventeen, I I went to Florida on spring break and. Uh, Came back and that's all I needed. Was that was it. <laughs> that was it. Uh, once I graduated high school, I moved down to Florida. Where in, where in Florida did you move to? Uh, Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. Okay, and that's obviously where where you moved yes. to, Carrie. Right. Uh, um, and what had you decide to both move back north? I mean, Florida's pretty enticing, and actually, you would have been there in you know in Fort Lauderdale, kind of more of the wild days, you know. Yes, like, it was. Well, uh, we had we had lived in Fort Lauderdale when it was wild, and we. We decided we, we got we came back to New York and got married. So when we moved back to Florida, or we still lived in Florida, we decided that if we're going to stay married, we have to leave Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and you moved to a part of New York where people who want to stay married probably moved to, which is Staten Island. <laughs> and uh, you had family connections there, yes. which is what brought you to Staten Island. Yes, we did. And that in those days, Staten Island must not have been as developed as it is now. When no, you moved there. it really wasn't. No. Huh. What part of Staten Island did you live in? We were living in the Silver Lake area. Uh, there's a uh-huh. huge park uh, on Highland. I think it's... Victory no, Boulevard. Victory Boulevard, correct. Now, when you both moved back to New York, you continued in carpentry. and But Carrie, you, I was Terry, sorry for our listeners. You can't see my hand <laughs> waving and pointing at the people <laughs> in the studio. But Carrie, you decided to open a bakery. Yes. What was it called? Uh, it was called the Friend of a Farmer Bakery. Oh, it was but, okay. Yeah, the start of it was I just started canning and preserving all just as a hobby, 
all my own uh, preserves and putting everything in jars. And I started collecting, collecting, collecting. And I finally said to myself, you know what? I think I want to open up a little place and see where it goes. I just had a concept in my head. And I wanted something very, very American. I wanted something very organic, something very, very different for that time. Because at that time, everything was Nouvelle Cuisine. And I was bringing in a different flavor. And everybody thought I was crazy. But I went for it. And uh, we opened Friend of a Farmer with just six tables. It was only open for breakfast and lunch at that time. And um, it just took off from day one. When did you open it? What year did you open? The year was... Uh, March 1986. Wow, and natural ingredients and no smoking. And no smoking. smoking. We were the first (laughs) non-smoking restaurant. Well, we actually, we built a place to be a bakery takeout. And in the last hour, we decided to take all the high top tables out and put regular seats in to become a restaurant and bakery. Why did you choose Gramercy to open your first business and what was it about the neighborhood that had you say, this is it, this is where my concept is Well, we were thinking about two different locations. One of them was on Christopher Street and the other was Gramercy. And at that time, Gramercy, there was really nothing going on. There was Pete's Tavern across the street. There was one restaurant called Irving, or 65 Irving on the corner. So I brought my cousin Stephen in, who was a big photographer at the time, and he lived in the village, and he came and looked at the locations. He said, hands down, no questions asked, Gramercy Park is your location. And that's what we did. How long was it before you decided to, to open the full restaurant from, from doing a bakery? Well, we did that almost immediately. We um, we we took one, our first space was 10 by 24, and we had, I think, 12 or 14 seats. So we decided to go bigger because there was a shoemaker in between us and the vacant space. So we decided to ask the shoemaker, listen, I'll pay and move you over, and we'll take the two adjoining spaces. He was like, no way. I'm not doing <laughs> it. We yeah. offer. He, he said, he "I want a hundred thousand dollars." Trust the old New York shoemaker. Right? Exactly. He's ninety, and he's been there a million years, and he wasn't moving. So, <laughs> so the original space we kept as a restaurant, and then the space we had to go outside and go to the second one. We made our bakery. And is is that still in the same premises that you are now? Like, it is still in the same premise, but we ended up taking an additional three stores. They're all. Connected. You know, segments of stores. Mm-hmm. We ended up taking that, and then we ended up taking the upstairs, um, which is what we are today. Well, I think it came off, it, it started to really explode when Brian Miller wrote us up in Diner's Journal. Now, Brian Miller came by and said, I'm writing you up, and I didn't even know what the Diner's Journal was at that point until all the neighbors that would come in to get their muffins were like, Congratulations, congratulations. And I didn't know what they were talking about. That day for lunch, I had a line down the street. I didn't know what to do. We ran out of food. It, that was the start of, it, it was crazy that day. And that was the start of us moving and growing and going up and going sideways. And that was really the start of it when he wrote us up. And when did that write-up happen? What? what? That was three weeks after we opened. Wow. The original uh-huh. uh, location. Wow. Well, I want to turn to, to Taylor and Wes a second, uh, being a family-run business. When, when did you guys begin working in the business? So I came in... Uh, that's Taylor. Yeah, that's... Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I've been working it since I was a kid, and then um, shortly after I graduated college, I started uh, managing more full-time, and then Wes came on. And this is Wes. Uh, I came on about two and a half years ago, um, just after we opened our second location in Brooklyn. 
Um, I was also actually doing real estate and then I switched over to, to join the family businesses tends to suck everyone else in. So. <laughs> Why in God's name would you have left the real estate industry to work at the restaurant business? That's what I'm, I'm asking myself the same question. <laughs> so you, you have a location in Brooklyn as well, not, um, and Roslyn as well. Uh, we, we, the location in Brooklyn, we closed uh, just over a year ago. And then the mm-hmm. Roslyn one we closed um, a, a few years back as well. So now you have you have two locations, Friend of Farmer and and the barbecue place. Yes. Right. What did you decide to open a barbecue place? Uh, Friend of a Farmer is a very distinct. And full disclosure: I've actually been to Friend of a Farmer and dined on the second floor. What uh, What had you decide to to pursue barbecue? Passion well, or well, uh, well, my all my kids went to Friends Academy and they used to have a fair once a year. So I I had this huge smoker, forty racks of ribs it would hold, and I put it in my garage and I'd pull it out on a trailer and bring it to friends and cook 200 racks of rib <laughs> once a year. And we do Super Bowl too. And we, everybody said, why don't you open a place? Why don't you? Open? This went on for years. So finally, one day we found the spot and we opened the barbecue place. Is it in Roslyn as well? It's in Locust Valley. Locust Valley. Okay. Okay. Uh, getting back to Gramercy, uh, now you've been there for for so long. What is it that that excites you about about Gramercy as a neighborhood to to have to own a business? You know, in? I never get tired of that neighborhood. I feel like, you know, I've been there, we've been there thirty two years, and I've seen the change, but it's never lost the charm and the beauty. And I walk around that park, and every time I walk around that park, I see something different. It's just a tranquil, beautiful neighborhood, and I, I've just watched it grow over the years. It's it's just. A fabulous part of town. It's nice that it's a two-way street. There's not a lot of traffic. It's only six blocks long. Irving Place. Irving Mm -hmm. Place, Mm -hmm. yes. What excites you about the neighborhood? Um, Aside from just liking the the vibe, is there anything that that really gets you excited about it? Well, the people. we, We get such a... Um, yeah. wide range of, of customers from models these guys like <laughs> <laughs> and you know we have clientele Actors, that have been coming yeah. since uh, we opened I, I, we were doing some renovations in the restaurant today and a lady came up to me I, I don't remember her name but she said God I haven't seen you in years I said I haven't seen you but there's so many older people that have been following us for years that, that you see on the street now has it changed a lot since you opened your business? Tremendously. You in what ways? How has it changed? Well, it was really a sleepy area when we first came there. There wasn't really a whole lot going on. And um, you've seen a lot of the older people leave or move on or move to Florida. And now you see a whole flux of young families, young kids, you know, younger. Just, you know, it's all, the whole feeling of the neighborhood has changed. Um, it's not quite as quiet as it used to be, but still wonderful. Um they ha- they haven't taken down all the original buildings you know there's i think they they've taken down a parking garage and that's about it so the streets remain pretty much the same and the the high school still across the street washington Irving yeah, high school a is still yes yeah um, when I first went into the media business, and, well, uh, uh, and sold digital media in 1996, I worked on the corner of 17th Street and Park Avenue and hung out there. And it was it was it was more quiet then. But I wanted to ask you how the neighborhood has changed. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with the Morabito family, owners and operators, a friend of a farmer on Irving Place. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
Best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com back to Rediscovering New York and our journey to Gramercy today with our lovely guests, the Morabita family, Carrie, Terry, Taylor, and Wes. I think this is the first family business that I've had on Rediscovering New York, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm glad we're doing this. Uh, do most of your customers live in Gramercy, or do they come from, from other parts of town? They, uh, during, uh, during the week, I think they, uh, a lot of them are local um, a lot of business people on weekends for brunch. They uh-huh. they come from everywhere, everywhere. And w- the trend now is the young kids send their parents to wait online and tell them we'll we'll be there because <laughs> it's usually about a forty minute wait. So once the parents say we're next, the kids show up. I've seen the lions on the weekends to get in for brunch. What would induce the parents to stand on line for the kids? And when I was growing up, it was the other way around. You know, the parent yeah. you, you, you would do it for your parents. It's funny. Yeah, well, I think the parents are coming from Long Island or, you know, not in the area. So they're always on time. Um, what's the website of the business and contact information so people can find out more about if the people have not been to Friend of Farm yet? Uh, it's friendofafarmer.com, and then we've got handles on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and then Facebook's just Friend of a Farmer. But the Instagram and uh, Twitter is at Friend of a Farmer. Do you have people who like to post uh, to your to your social media? Do they uh, like take pictures of dinners and post them? Or yeah, I mean, we we definitely see our fair share of posts online. Um, definitely a good way to quality control, and make sure everything's going and looking as good as we like it to be when we're not there. So. All it's, positives. It's funny, though, because how things have changed since Terry and I have been there. Now that the kids are there, it's a whole other generation. But it's interesting because I seat these young people sometimes for brunch, and I see they don't even need the menu. They just go on their Instagram, and they look at what people are eating and what people are posting, and they look at their picture and say, I'll take that. Wow. And I'm like, don't you want to see the menu? No, no, no. I want <laughs> that, that picture. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's a whole other way of, you know, 
seeing things. So when you do a, uh, a new menu, do you save on your printing costs by knowing that you'll need a fraction <laughs> of the menu? We'll just come in and order, and order yeah, off wish. of Instagram. <laughs> Would you have any advice for anyone who's thinking about opening a business in, in Gramercy now that you've been there and seen it for such a long time and seen the neighborhood change? <laughs> and about? Well, you know, the, the hardest thing right now in New York is getting a, a decent rent, you know, to, you know, it's a, you can't have too big a space because of all the, all the, um, um, taxes, insurance. taxes and things going on. So the, that's the hardest thing is finding a good rent that, that you can, uh, manage. In the neighborhood, is there anything that you struggle with that's that's not rent related? I know you've been there a long time, but is there anything specific about the neighborhood that, that, that has impacted your business in not such a great way? I know it's kind of a very in- unusual question to ask, but... I, uh, I think um, times are changing a little bit. You know, people are changing. We now, we get complaints about people having to go on the edge of the sidewalk to get past the line. Um, people saying that our tables extend too far. I think now people see the line and see that, you know, oh, they're a busy place. They complain a lot more. You know, there's just a lot of nitpicking that I, I feel like maybe our parents didn't have to deal with that we now kind of have irate people. They for, don't understand the concept of a line, basically. Right. They want yeah. us to call them or take their name, but right. we don't do that. Uh, well, I've made reservations before. Can, uh, can yeah, you? Yeah, we take reservations. The only time we don't is for brunch. That's uh-huh. the only time we don't take reservations. Is there anything about the neighborhood that that surprises you, or that continues to that may have surprised you that you didn't expect something about it? Um, I, I actually I, I find it like very odd in the way that uh, you know my brother and myself will be working and someone will come in and I've I've been noticed because they say you look just like the owner. You know I used to come here 30, <laughs> 33 years ago and you know you look just like him. I'm like oh, you know it's it's sometimes uncomfortable to you know be like oh well that's my dad. Um, you know, it's nepotism got me the job, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's strange to kind of see how, you know, those people interact with them and that they were at one point managing. And then, you know, hopefully 30 years from now, someone will be saying that to my kid, but you know, who knows? Did you have a beard then, Terry? I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I can, I can hardly grow one. (laughs) Wes has a beard, by the way. And so does his brother Taylor. This is better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, there was always a, um, a community that in Gramercy that we, um, uh, this guy, Dwayne Michaels, who was a famous photographer in New York City, uh, around the country, and his partner, Fred, they were the community leaders, and we would, they would do, um, get the community together to do street cleaning, or we bought lamp poles for, and they're still up, the, these historic lamp poles on each corner. So, so it was very community-oriented. It still is. Was that done by the equivalent of a business improvement district or, a, or an organization of businesses to put yeah. lamp up? It was kind of both. Um, it, it was a community effort, and like a friend of a farmer, Sal Anthony's, Pete's, uh, all the restaurants and, and businesses on the street all donated to, to change the lampposts from the ugly aluminum to these beautiful black metal. Uh, ones. metal. Oh. Did you have trouble with the city and getting those approved, or was was it, uh, or there's sort of city designated companies that provide you know lampposts if the businesses are willing to to uh, put the bill for it? That I'm not sure. We just we wrote just our check, <laughs> and, and I, I like you said, I think Dwayne Michaels handled all the city city information and what needed to be done. Hmm. 
Another uh, kind of unusual question. Is there anything you wish Gramercy was that it's not? Uh, I really don't. I, I I wish it was, you know, 30 years ago and the rent was 30 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> but but that, uh, as far as, as far as, you know, like I said, it's a beautiful street. It's a quiet street. Neighbors, neighborhood. Um, no, there there's really nothing that I can think of, maybe. No, I mean... Uh, you couldn't ask for a, a better neighborhood, I don't think. Mm. How do you see the future of the neighborhood going? Do you think it's it's going to evolve or change in any way that you haven't seen it? I don't think it's going to change all that much in terms of the look of it. I feel like you've got a board in place that keeps that neighborhood just the way it is. I mean, in terms of what's around and what the buildings look like, it's pretty much the same. I mean, it's they've made some really nice improvements. However, the look of it, I think, will remain. I don't think it's, I think it's always going to be what it is. Um, I, I don't think the wrecking ball is going to hit anything on Irving Place. Uh, I think no. what's there is there, and it's not. It's not changing. The, the only thing that really changed, which was big, was the, um, the Salvation Army home on the corner of Irving and 20th. Oh, the all girls. It oh. was a, all women, and then uh, somebody bought it, and now the apartments are, you know, five million or whatever. Well, full disclosure, those were two of the people who own my company, <laughs> 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 Will and Arthur Zeckendorf. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but I have to say, you know, obviously this is I've, I've been involved with Halstead, although I'm not technically an employee. Uh, uh, the buildings that they have done have actually uh, been well done and have been keeping with the neighborhood. But of course. Uh, 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 you know, uh, as neighborhoods change and economics change, some businesses move on and some institutions are no longer there. And it happens all over the city, for sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Um, interesting question. Um, are there any interesting or colorful neighborhood personalities that you have come to know that you might want to uh, talk a little about without... Uh, 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 oh, yeah, there's a famous artist that's Lee. always... You know, Lee, Lee from across from Pete's. And he... Uh, from Pete's Tavern? Yeah, uh-huh. he's always out there. I mean, he did a painting. We have that's actually paintings. in my one's yeah. in my apartment. Yeah, we have and we have two in the restaurant that he's. Oh, he has one from I think '88 and '96 that we have in the restaurant currently. Yeah, um, he, they're pretty pretty like cool, t- like photographs of the past of that street. Yeah, he's out there all summer long painting. He does mostly Pete's Tavern because most people that walk by buy his painting. Yeah, he's and, a cool and, guy. Yeah. Very cool guy. By his paintings at Pete's Tavern. Yes. Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gramercy, it shows the park in the background. and He just stands but, outside with yeah. his canvas and just paints, and he, he's just really talented. Hmm. Has he been there a long time doing it? Does he, uh, for years, as long as I can remember. He was there last year. I know he had a, a health issue, but uh, he, I, he was back there last year. Last question. Do, do you see yourselves opening up another business in the neighborhood of any kind? Or, uh, you know you mentioned you were going to be doing some Yeah, I think right now you know, we're a growing friend of a farmer. I mean, these guys came in, my sons, and are bringing a different flair to what we do. The menu gets changed seasonally. I mean, there's a lot that goes on in that location. And right now we're excited about this new expansion, bringing back our muffins and all that wonderful baked stuff that we used to do. So that's going to be it for now. Um, but who knows? I never say never. You never ah. know. Well, great. Well, thank you, Carrie, Terry, Taylor, and Wes Morabito. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. thank you. We've just finished this week's journey to Gramercy Park and Gramercy. Uh, guests have been the Morabito family and Tom Miller, the Daytonian in Manhattan. 
If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, the same name, and you can also follow me on Instagram. I'm Jeff Goodman, NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761, or of course, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the amazing Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Theergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here live on talkradio.nyc, and at 9 p.m. Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.